numbers you could compare between one and the other to get the right one. And now, now there are so many different fiddly bits. It's hard to figure out which one is better, which one's worse. Or, or maybe you're thinking about a car. Maybe you're thinking about deciding on a car. Now, now, I guess some of you would think it's straightforward to figure out which car to get. There's only one thing that matters, right? It's the not to 60. Or, or maybe some other more mature people here might be thinking, maybe it's the, it's the MPG that's the crucial figure. Maybe that's the, the, the one thing that, that really matters in making that decision. But what about, what about even bigger decisions, even more complicated decisions? Let's say, let's say you're considering two jobs. You're trying to decide between two jobs. How do you go about doing that? How do you go about making that big decision? Or, or maybe you're trying to decide on, on a house. You're buying a house and you're looking at different houses. Can you just you know, weigh them up straight against each other? It's not that easy, is it? So, so what do you do? What do you find yourself doing? I guess for me, I would try and write myself a list of pros and cons, you know, the good things about going this way, the good things about going that way. Or if I'm feeling really sophisticated, I might make myself a nice spreadsheet that does it for me. I can list out the different options and score them, and then magically at the bottom, it'll tell me just what I should do. Well, Jesus, um, we're we're continuing our series here in Matthew's biography of Jesus, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has something to say to us about making the biggest decisions of our lives today. He has important things to say about decision-making. Now, two weeks ago, if you were with us, Liam was teaching us um, from, from a section back at the beginning of chapter 11 where John the Baptist is in prison. It's not going well for him. And he, he sends a message to Jesus. And he says, he says here in 11 verse 5, he says, um, in verse 3, sorry, are you, are you the one who was to come? He says, are you the one who was to come? So John is asking questions. He's saying, are you the one, Jesus? Are you the promised one we've been waiting for? Are you this rescuer? And we looked at the way, two weeks ago, we looked at the way Jesus responds to that question from John. Or maybe you were here last week, and last week we were looking at what's called these unrepentant cities. Jesus is talking about the cities in which he's been doing all his miracles. And he's talking, saying, look at all the, the, the signs and the things these cities have seen, and yet, and yet they don't recognize me, and yet they won't turn to me. He says they won't repent, they won't stop going this way turn around and go back the right way. He says they won't repent. So those are the two sections we've come out of. And let me read today's section. It's Matthew 11, uh, starting at verse 25. So if you can find one of these red Bibles in front of you, this is on page 977. And we're going to read from there. So one of these red Bibles on 977. Matthew 11. Starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Stop there today. So these last two sections, okay, John is asking questions about who Jesus is. Then Jesus goes on to talk to these cities about how they're responding to who Jesus is. The interesting thing is that Jesus has given the same information to both groups. So if you look at, in chapter 11, back at verse 5, you can see what Jesus says to John. John's asking, are you the promised one? Are you this Messiah we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, the blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. He's saying to John, here are all the things that are happening. He's sending that information back to John to help John with his decision about who Jesus is. But then look at these these cities that Jesus says are not responding in the way they should. Well, what information did they have? Look in 11 verse 20. In 11 verse 20, Jesus denounces the cities in which most of his miracles have been done. So what information did those cities have? You know, they had seen the lame healed. They'd seen the deaf healed. They'd seen the blind able to see and the dead raised. They'd seen the same things. They had the same information to make this decision about who Jesus is. Now, one gets it. One gets it. John recognizes who Jesus is. The other doesn't. With the same information, these cities don't respond as they said to Jesus. We're not data-driven like we want to be, right? We kind of claim and suggest that we're rational people, that we decide between options on information. But I think what you're seeing here is that we're not. Look at what Jesus says. So in verse 25, where we started reading, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Now, what are are these things that are hidden? Well, they're the things that are in discussion. They're the, the identity of Jesus. Is he the promised Savior or not? They're the way we should respond to Jesus. That's what he's saying. They're They're hidden from the wise and the learned. Now, you might expect the wise and learned to get this. Do you know there's, there's, there's data? Okay, this data points to conclusions. And generally speaking, isn't that what we're hoping wise and learned people can do? They can follow a logical argument and arrive at conclusions. But they're not. They're not rational decision makers. We're not rational decision makers. Let me tell you how I decided on this job here. Um, so when I was thinking about what to do next after finishing studying, we had, we had quite a lot of options up and down the country that we were thinking about. I'm not sure they were all thinking about me, but I was thinking about them. And um, I, I listed out the different options in this spreadsheet, and then I went through a long, long list of things to think about. You know, um, is this somewhere that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll grow? Is this somewhere I can serve effectively? Is this somewhere that works for my family? Is this somewhere that I... I'd like to be, frankly. I listed out this long set of things, and then I gave each job scores, and I added them up at the bottom. I even called this, I saved the spreadsheet as Matt's magic decision maker. The hope was it was going to tell me exactly what to do. 
well, do you know what? I didn't do what it said. I didn't do what it said in the end. I chose. I chose differently. Or when I was choosing about which university to go to, you know, I, they, they, they send you these fat brochures telling you all about them, loads of information. I spent ages reading about these different universities and then how I actually decided, how I actually decided. I was, a, I was at Warwick University. It was in the autumn. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and um, we were driving down the road, going away from the university. I looked out the window. It's a beautiful beach tree-lined avenue, trees after trees. The, the, the leaves were just changing. The sun was shining through, and I thought, that's where I'll go. That's where I'll go. See, we're not, we're not rational decision-makers, particularly when it comes to these big decisions. In fact, this irrationality of human decision-making, this kind of non-logic we apply, it's so well-known. There are, there are books about this. There are whole books about this. Predictably Irrational is, uh, is by Dan Arley, and it's 15 whole chapters of scientific studies showing that we're not rational decision-makers. Let me give you an example. Uh, he talks about one test where um, he says, I'm not offering to do this, by the way, but he says, three holidays, three holidays that you can choose from. A free holiday. You're going to get one of these three. Which one do you want? You're going to have a self-catering weekend in France, okay? A, in Paris. A self-catering weekend in Rome, or a fully paid, full board weekend in Rome. Now, do you know what your brain does when it's faced with that sort of decision? It says, Paris, Rome, Rome, Paris. They're like cities. They are lots of things. They're interesting. They're I don't know. That's difficult. Full board versus self-catering. That's something I can figure out. I'll take the full board. And your brain short circuits and throws away the other options. So you're not making a logical decision there. You just take the, the easier one to compare. And there's a whole raft of ways in which we're really not rational at making decisions. If you really want proof of this, all you need to do is go shopping. H have you ever noticed how everything is priced 99p? Have you ever noticed that? Why do you think that is? Do you think that's because you know, nobody felt like the round number would be helpful? It's because you buy more, because your brain thinks, oh, 9.99, that's not 10 pounds at all. I'll have that one. That's what your brain thinks. Or, or um, you know, when they're having a sale, do you really think they need to have a sale like 42 times a year? They don't need to have, it's not because they've accidentally overstocked. It's because we think, a sale, it's only going to last for a limited time. This might be my only chance. And we rush out and buy things we didn't need. Or, or what about buy one, get one free? How many of you think you're actually getting one free? But the illusion is there that you're going to get more for your money. See, marketers know we're irrational. They know we're irrational and they're loving it. But Jesus, Jesus is presenting us with this big question, okay, about who he is. Is he the promised one? How should we respond? What does it mean if he is? And uh, th this question, this question of who Jesus is, is really important. He tells us something about how important it is in the bit we read. I'm looking in verse 27. In verse 27, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. Everything has been handed over or entrusted to me by my Father. What's Jesus claiming there about, about who he is? He's claiming that God has given him all power, all authority, all, all reign. He's claiming, he's claiming to be equal with God there, isn't he? Or look at the, the symmetry between verses 25 and 27. So in 25, he praises the Father, that the Father has hidden things and chosen to reveal them. Then in 27... It turns right around, 
And he says, and I'm the only one who knows the Father. And I'm the one who's choosing who to reveal him to. See how tight the symmetry is there? So in one case, the Father is revealing who the Son is. In the other case, the Son is revealing who the Father is. Jesus is making these claims to be equal with God. That's who he's saying he is here. That's the question that we're deciding on. But it's not just his identity that's at stake. It's also a relationship. If you look at verse 27, he says, No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. Now, the word know here, the word know, uh, when we read that, there's a bunch of different ways we can read that word in. Um, we can read it as in, nobody knows about the Father except the Son. But the, the way it's meant is, it's meant relationally. Nobody knows the Father relationally. Nobody's in relationship with him. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, I know what the queen looks like. Pretty good idea. I know roughly where she lives, particularly when she's up in Scotland, just over there, right? I know, well, I might know, when her birthday is. I, I, I know her name. I know her name. I know these things about the queen. Do I know the queen? Do I know the queen? Well, maybe if you turn it around, it gets easier. Does the queen know me? She certainly does not know me. So there's a big difference between this knowing about type of knowledge and this relationally knowing. And when Jesus is talking about no one knows the Father except the Son, no one knows the Son except the Father, he's talking about relationship here. And this relationship, this relationship is critical for a satisfied life. Without it, life is profoundly unsatisfying. That's why Jesus goes on to say, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. That's why he's calling people who don't enjoy this relationship with God weary and burdened. He calls them, offering them rest, rest for their souls. Now, maybe you have friends who are, who are popular. Maybe you have friends who are, who are rich. I don't know, maybe you have friends who, who eat well, who have a beautiful home. Maybe, maybe you have friends who have perfect children. But what do you think? Do you think that they're truly, truly satisfied? Well, Rockefeller, okay, in the earliest 20th century, Rockefeller was the richest man on earth. He owned the biggest company on earth. His company was the most profitable company on earth. He had it going. He had it together. And in an interview with a newspaper reporter one time, the guy asked him, he said, how much money is enough? And what did this richest man in the world say? He said, a little bit more. A little bit more is enough. I mean, why do you think Ikea is so enormously successful? Because we're, we're not satisfied with our homes, you know? One more cupboard, another neat storage solution, and it's going to work. It's going to work soon. This is going to work. I've had the opportunity to work with some crazy rich people. And I've got to tell you, even for them, this doesn't work. There's always somebody with a bigger yacht. Do you know, it doesn't matter how long yours is and how many helicopters have gone on it. Somebody else is going to have one with a submarine. It doesn't work. You bring it to this question of uh, purpose. What, what's life all about? What are, we, what are we doing here? What's it for? Without some sort of goal, without something that we're headed towards... Isn't life oftentimes just a little bit meaningless? 
Now, this is not a new idea. This is not a new idea that this life is somehow profoundly unsatisfying, that this life somehow doesn't work. Thousands of years ago, in the Bible, there's a book called Ecclesiastes, and the guy there writes, he says, all of this life is just meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Imagine chasing after the wind. It's a good picture, isn't it, of just how you can, you can run after it, but you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. It doesn't work like that. Or Blaise Pascal, so a very, very famous mathematician, came up with a 3-4-5 triangle, I think. Did I get that right? Did he? He did. Somebody nod and say yes or no. We don't know. We did, he did. Came up with a 3-4-5 triangle. Blaise Pascal, okay, famous mathematician, a famous thinker. And do you know what he says? Uh, this is in the 17th century. He writes, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking even in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. It's Pascal saying, like it or not, we've got inside us this this God-shaped hole, this nagging dissatisfaction that we cannot fill. Or further back in the fourth century, Augustine, one of those um, really famous Christian thinkers, he writes in his confession, his story of how he became a Christian, he writes, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So what are we saying so far here? What I want to say is, firstly, we're not these rational decision makers that we like to believe we are. What we don't do is take lots of information, add it up, apply some logic, and arrive at decisions. That's not what even the world thinks we do. But secondly, Jesus, this question of his identity and our response to him. This is the most important question because this is the only route to true satisfaction. So when in our passage today he says, come to me, this is a a critical decision we're making here about whether we come or not. And we're in trouble. There's There's a perfect storm here. We're particularly irrational when it comes to this particular decision. Why don't the wise and learned get there? Why don't they get to the right answer about this? Well, Jesus gives us insight into why he talks about a yoke. In verse 29, he talks about a yoke, and this word is key to understanding the trouble we have with this decision. Now, when I say yoke, what do I mean? Do I mean the yellow thing in the middle of an egg? No, that's not the kind of yoke we're talking about, different one. I mean this kind of yoke here. This is what a yoke is. It's this, the thing you put around the neck of an animal when you want to harness it, when you want to harness it. Now, this is uh, a frequently used metaphor in the Bible. Um, if we trace the story of God's people all the way back to the beginning, we've got Jacob and Esau, two um, sons of the father, one chosen, one not. And um, the Bible tells us this about them. One of them gets this, um, the one who's not chosen gets this prophecy he's told You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you'll throw his yoke off from your neck. 
You see that model of throwing this yoke off? So you're serving, and then you throw this yoke off. Or, or um, remember God's people were slaves in Egypt? They were slaves in Egypt. Well, here's how God talks about this. God says, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God, and you'll know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Okay, God's people were slaves, and that's described in the Bible as being under the yoke of the Egyptians. So when we think about what a yoke is a picture of, what's the yoke a picture of? It's a picture of authority. It's a picture of service. It's a picture of submission and subjugation. That's what it's a picture of. And most of the time, when we read about yokes in the Bible, it's about throwing them off. Most of the time, even in modern times, when we think about this, this idea of being under someone's authority, well, most of what we want to do is throw that off, don't we? But here, what does Jesus say in verse 29? He says, take my yoke upon you. That is an extraordinary picture. This is an unusual thing going on here. He's saying, put yourself in submission to me. Accept this authority over ourselves. Now, I said that this helps us understand the particular challenges we have with the question of who Jesus is. And here's why. Here's why. We, we don't want his authority. We don't want his authority. We want our own authority, don't we? There's like this default setting within us. You know how like when you turn a clock on, it always flashes at 12 o'clock? Well, you, you wake us up in the morning, and what do we want to do? We want to rebel. We don't want to accept somebody else's authority. We want our own authority. What do we think? We think he's going to ask too much. We think he's going to spoil our fun. We want to do things our way, not his way. For me, this is, this is very much the story of how I became a Christian. The key question for me was, am I willing to submit to God or not? Am I willing to go his way or not? And I became a Christian when I decided, well, yes, I'm willing. I'm ready to submit. Now, many of you here know your Bibles incredibly well. And uh, you might be thinking Jesus is talking about something a bit different. You might be thinking about, he's, he's talking about swapping the, the yoke of the law, this set of commands that God gave his people to follow for Jesus' yoke. And the law is this thing that's been burdening people down and weighing them down and making them weary. Now, definitely there are other places in the Bible where the, the law is talked about as a, as a yoke, as this kind of authority over people. Definitely there are places where it's referred to as a burden. But that idea that what we're talking about here in this passage is swapping one yoke, the yoke of the law, the yoke of the submission to rules, for another yoke, the yoke of submission to Jesus. That's not actually here in this text. If you look in here, there's no indication that there's any other yoke involved. Right? There's no take off here at all, is there? There's no take off. There's no swap. There's no other yoke in view. There's no suggestion that some other yoke is behind this burden. So there's something confusing. Jesus is saying that we are burdened and weary without a yoke, without any authority over us. That's, that's counterintuitive. Well, how come we're burdened in that case? Well, I think 
ultimately, that's the big story of the Bible. I think if you go right back to the beginning, if you go right back to the garden and our first parents, now what did God say to them? He said, in this wonderful garden, you can eat the fruit from any, any of these trees at all, except this one, except this one. He's putting an authority on them. He's putting, he, he, he puts a restriction on them. And what, what did our first parents do with that restriction? They threw it off. They said, no, thank you. We'll eat from every tree in the garden. Thank you very much. We'll eat from every tree. And what did they find with that? They threw this off and they became burdened. Life became hard. The world became broken. And that's the story since then, right? We throw off this yoke, this authority over us. We throw it off thinking, freedom, that's what I want. I want freedom. And what do we find instead? Instead we find we're burdened and we're weary. It's counterintuitive, right? But it turns out true freedom is living as we're meant to be living. Give you a, a picture of this, okay? Picture a fish in the ocean. Picture a fish in the ocean. Uh, you can make it stripy if you like or spotty. But there's this fish in the ocean. It's swimming around, okay? It's free. It can swim up, down, left, right. It can swim wherever it likes in this massive ocean that reaches as far as it can see. Now, let's say that fish says, I'm not free. I'm not free until I'm on the beach. I'm not free until I can walk up and down the beach. If you take that fish out of the water and you slap it down on the beach, have you made the fish free? Is it free? Oh, it's just flapping around on its way to death. Or, or, or take me, okay? I can walk along this earth, but you know, I just won't be free until I can fly. I'm not going to be free until I can fly. So let's say I take a, I take a flight in an airplane. And uh, while I'm up there high in the skies, I open the door and step out. Am I free? Am I free? Well, perhaps. Perhaps for a minute and a half, perhaps for two minutes, I'm somewhat free. But then, pancake. The idea that true freedom comes from the absence of any restrictions, quite simply, is a lie. That's not true freedom at all. True freedom is living in the environment we're designed for, in the way we're designed to live. And we are designed to be under God's yoke. That's why when we throw it off, we're not free. When we throw it off, we're burdened. And counterintuitively, paradoxically, when we put it on, when we come under his authority, we're free. He made us, you see, and he knows us. It's like the designer of a car knows whether it takes petrol or diesel. And this is what he tells us exactly here. In verse 30, he says, my yoke is easy. My yoke is easy. Now, that word easy is a little bit broader in the original language. What that word easy means, it means adapted, suitable. It means appropriate, fit for purpose. He says, my yoke is appropriate for you. My yoke is, is fit for purpose. Not so much that wearing it is going to actually be easy, unfortunately. Jesus says our grasping at freedom actually leaves us burdened, trapped. But we don't, we don't want to accept this. We don't want to come under his yoke. It's our default to resist it. Our irrationality makes us bad at making decisions in the first place, but then our nature, our default of rebellion, makes this decision about who Jesus is and how we respond a corker for us. We need help. 
We need to phone a friend. We need someone from outside stepping in. But that's exactly what Jesus says is going on here. He says it twice just so we don't miss it. Look in verse 25. He says, you hid in these things from the wise and the learned. You revealed them to little children. Been revealed, came from the outside in. Or verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Outside in again, stepping in. Revelation. That's what we need to get this. So, Jesus' authority is the way to rest, to rest for our souls, He calls it here. Jesus' authority is the way out of this burden. Now, as we're thinking about how to make decisions, how to make a big decision about Jesus, I think it's helpful to ask some questions before accepting a new authority like this. Um, like when you install some software, do you install some software on your computer and it comes up with a, a license agreement. It says, do you, do you agree to this? And there's always like 46 pages of legal fine print and nobody on earth reads these. And you're always a bit worried about, do I really agree with this? I don't know what's in it. In fact, in London, somebody recently ran an experiment. They put up... They put up a Wi-Fi network, a free Wi-Fi network, and they hid in the terms and conditions right at the bottom. They, they hid a condition that said, and you hereby commit to hand over your firstborn children to the providers for the duration of eternity. And people still signed up. So it is worth thinking about the small print before you make these sorts of commitments, before you accept these things. Is it, is it risky to submit to Jesus in the same way? Are we taking a big risk there? Well, in verse 29, he tells us something to give us comfort about this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. He's telling us about his character. He's showing us his character that makes him a good master. Now, I mean, think about this for a minute. Jesus is asking us to accept his authority. He's saying, come under this authority. But at the same time, he's telling us, I'm a gentle master. I'm a gentle master. That, that sounds good, right? There's not so much whip cracking, perhaps. Not going to get beaten so often. But he also says he's humble in heart. Now, what does it mean for our authority, our master, to be humble in heart? What's he driving at there? How, how are you humble whilst you're driving this oxen in front of you? There's a... There's a passage in the Bible that many of you will be familiar with that talks about how Jesus shows his humility. One of Jesus' early followers, Paul, writing to a church he started, and he says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. It says, um, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There it is, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's Philippians. So Jesus' humility works itself out in the incarnation, the big word that means Jesus comes to earth as a human. Jesus' humility works itself out in the crucifixion. Jesus goes to the cross. He takes our punishment in our place instead of us. These two things, right, the incarnation, the crucifixion, show us Jesus' humility. And what does it tell us? It tells us 
He loves us. He has our best interests at heart. He is willing to go to such extreme lengths for us. So when we think about whether we should accept his authority, when we think about what sort of master he's going to be, this is the sort of master he's going to be. This is what he tells us. His burden is light. He, he cares for us. So today, Jesus is still asking this question. He's still asking us, will you take up my yoke? Will you learn from me? Still this big question. Well, what does this look like? What would it look like to accept his authority, to recognize that only under this constraint are we actually free to live? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today. If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you came. It's great. Now, what, would this, what could this look, for, look like for you? If you were going to say yes to Jesus as your authority, if you were going to metaphorically put this yoke on, what would it look like? It would look like accepting his authority, learning from his teaching and his example, right? You can, you can read about Jesus in these Bibles, and if you don't have one, take one of these home so you can learn from him. Accepting the limits he sets on your life as good ones. These are good limits for your good. Now, this is a step you can take here today. It's not a complicated thing. You don't need any special clothes. There's no special procedure required. You can just tell him you're ready to accept his authority today. Now, if you're going to do that today, please tell someone. Please, please tell someone. Maybe somebody brought you and you can talk to them. Uh, maybe you can talk to me. I'll try and be down at the door afterwards. Maybe um, you've got one of these blue cards. Um, you can just fill in on there. Tell somebody so that we can help you get started. See, it's, it's scary accepting somebody else's authority, even in a small thing. But this isn't a small thing. He's asking for your whole life. Make no mistake. It's going to be wholesale change, not just redecoration. But he's a good master who wants what's best for you. Under his yoke, you find true rest. Or... Maybe you'd call yourself a Christian here today, but maybe if you think about it, what you've really got is one shoulder in there under the yoke and the other one out, right? Maybe there are some places where your life is under his authority, but other places where it's not. Maybe there are, there are demands that he makes that are, that are too hard or too costly. Maybe there are things he wants you to do that would make you stand out from the crowd take you away from things you would choose. Limit your freedom even. If there are things you know Jesus wants from you that you've just not been willing to give, you are not under his yoke. You're not under his yoke and so you don't get to enjoy the soul rest that he is offering. Still burdened, still weary. Or maybe it's not just that you've got one shoulder and maybe it's, a, maybe it's an on and off thing. Maybe, maybe um, you wear the yoke on Sundays, you look like a Christian, you go home, you're hanging up on the door. Or maybe, maybe you accept his authority most of the time, but every now and then, every now and then you want a Thursday night out with the lads. Every now and then you want to nurse that last slice of freedom that you're keeping for yourself, this freedom. 
Well, I want you to ask yourself if you're actually ending up burdened by that. If you know you're slipping out, do you actually end up burdened, trapped, weary rather than rested by that freedom? Why not commit today to going full-time? Why not commit today to abandoning yourself to this good authority? Or maybe you would say that you are fully in. Maybe you'd say you're utterly in this, totally committed. But the truth is actually you're struggling. Struggling with the master sometimes over which way to go. Maybe you've been pulling one way while he's trying to plow the other. Or maybe, maybe you've seen some green grass that you think is particularly tasty up here ahead. And it feels like the way he's nudging you is over to this dry patch. Doesn't look so exciting. Well, accepting Jesus' yoke, it means surrendering control, doesn't it? That's what it means. It means giving him the control and the authority. Going where he plans, not where you plan. Is it actually the case right now that you can feel he's pulling up? He's trying to lift your head out of that tasty grass that it's got stuck in, and he wants you back to plowing. Are you maybe enjoying where you are too much, resisting his urging? Or is he, is he pulling hard left just now, taking you to somewhere new in the field, somewhere you haven't been, somewhere perhaps that's scary, and you're more comfortable with plowing straight on? You know this rut. You know this furrow. You've been down here before, but he's saying, over there. Well, that's Jesus' question. It's his question to all of us. Will you take this yoke upon you? Will you accept my complete authority over your life and so find rest? I'm going to give us one minute just now to think about where we are with this yoke. I think it's a question that's relevant to every one of us. Where are we with this yoke? I'm just going to give us one minute in silence to think about that before we carry on. Lord God, speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, right now. Just one minute's silence to reflect. Let me pray for us now as the band come up. Let me pray for us. Father God,